0: Morena, no mai kiti korero. Welcome to the Catch-Up on Manawatu People's Radio. Tereo reo Ona o o Manawatu. It is a Tuesday morning and that means we turn our attention uh, to the institution on the hill, Massey University, uh, with this new Look Catch-Up series. We're getting an opportunity to uh, have a little peek behind the curtain of Massey University and some of the personalities and academics within. And we are delighted today uh, to uh, welcome Associate Professor Caroline Miller to the studio and a forewarning uh, there's a similarity in accent and when that happens sometimes that can escalate into being impenetrable to listeners but we'll do our best. Good morning Caroline.
1: Good morning.
0: Um, Now uh, just before we went to air I asked you to do a little sound check and asked you to say your name and where you're from Um, but you gave your job title and it might be worth doing that again because I can't remember.
1: Yes, I'm Associate Professor Caroline Miller. I'm in the Resource and Environmental Planning Programme, which is in the School of People, Environment and Planning um, up here at the Tertiary campus.
0: Marvellous. Um, now, one of uh, your achievements and one that I was particularly interested in was uh, the biography of Reginald Hammond, the designer of Savage Crescent. Uh, people uh, in in today's circles, people are saying how wonderful Papayoya Place is as a social housing uh, initiative. Um, one would be inclined to say it pales into insignificance beside uh, Savage Crescent and its success and its tenure of success.
1: Yes, Savage Crescent is very special to the city. And when I was a planner at the city council, I remember when Greg Vossler, who looked after heritage matters in terms of planning, suggested that we might protect Savage Crescent. And I had to take a deep breath because this was the 1980s, um, late 1980s, beginning of the 1990s. And social housing wasn't seen as something that was worthy of protection. Heritage was very focused on the houses of the rich and the important Um, with some beginnings of um, recognition of Māori sites, um, and which tended to be archaeological sites, but very much, um, you know, the grand houses, uh, the Albertans, etc. Um, so, however, Greg did actually persuade me that it was um, worthy of protection and I began to take an interest in it. And when I became an academic in the 1990s, um, the Dictionary of National Biography was being written and I nominated Reg Hammond Mm. basically because he was uh, a significant early planner and was one of the only significant early planners I knew about because really the profession uh, and the community knew nothing of New Zealand's planning history, never been any research done. Anyhow, so I wrote the entry for Reg and started to take an interest in his life. And as my interest in planning history increased, which led to me doing my PhD in that area, I started to basically collect material on Mm. Reg and Reg's life. And what I think is important uh, in terms of Reg Hammond is not just that he was an early planner, but that he was a good man. Mm. And the world is lacking in good men and good women. Um, he was a local boy. He born and brought up in Dargaville. Well, in fact, he was born just out of Dargaville. But, you know, a small-town New Zealand background. He had uh, training as an architect and a surveyor. But he goes off to Britain um, self-financed and gets himself a town planning Um, qualification in terms of membership of the newly formed Town Planning Institute. He works for the London County Council in their public housing. And that creates in him two things. He wants to see town planning legislation for New Zealand so that New Zealand avoids um, doing some of the things that it'd been doing in terms of how it designed urban areas. But also he had this abiding interest in housing. And throughout his career, he always tried to bring planning, town planning and housing together.
0: I was going to ask about that because is is, having a a qualification in in architecture and in town planning, are those things that often go hand in hand or is that quite unique to to Reginald?
1: No. At the time, it was very common. When town planning emerges as a separate profession in the early 20th century, we're a very new profession – you The belief was there would not be sufficient town planning work for anybody to make um, um, a, a proper income from right so you had to be qualified in another area in fact to enter the diploma courses that were being offered at the University of Liverpool and at London. So everybody came with baggage. But because New Zealand was small, we probably had more what you would call multiply qualified people. So in a town like Dargaville, there would never have been enough work for an architect. And Reginald's father was a surveyor engineer. Um, So you had to have something else. Mm -hmm. So you were a surveyor. But what it meant was that in his later career, that served Red, very well because he was able to look at a block of land have a good idea how it could be subdivided up And then he knew how to put a house onto it to achieve
0: it. And this is the other success of of Savage Crescent, and and I referenced it earlier, the tenure of its success. It isn't just uh, a bundle of monolithic state houses. There is character, and I think you said before we started, experimentation at the time for how that came together.
1: Savage Crescent's very early in the state housing programme. Reg is one of the first three people of the three professional staff and he and Gordon Watson, the, Wilson, the architect, um, they basically had to do all the design work because there was no one else there to do it. Mm. They had draftsmen as well, of course. But Reg tended to go off and look at the land because what they did in the early uh, state housing um, developments was they made all government departments surrender land to them that they already owned. So Savage Crescent was originally intended to be a secondary school site. The Ministry of Education were forced to give it to the housing fee people. And so Reg had this lovely block of land, which at the time would have been sort of on the edges of the city, but still within walking and Mm -hmm. easy cycling distance. People didn't at the time in the 30s have cars, not the sort of people who were going to live in Savage Crescent. Um, And so he could design the whole thing comprehensively. And he was very concerned, um, partly from his overseas experience, for instance, to ensure that children were separated from from vehicles. So if you look in Savage Crescent, there's all sorts of little walkways that connect it together, and that was to try and keep children as much as possible away from um, roads that were carrying vehicles. But also the nice curvilinear, which was good surveying practice of the time. You'd have seen it elsewhere. But that tends to slow traffic as well. Mm. You cannot speed as much <laughs> around corners, particularly those sweeping corners you see in Savage Crescent. And the big central reserve was intended to, to be open space. And originally, when the houses were built, there was only like a hedge at the back. So you looked out. Now, that's a lot in many cases been replaced by fencing since. But, yes, he had a, a whole concept in his mind But because it was early on, they were experimenting with different designs. And you see that through Savage Crescent. There are some fabulous houses, particularly ones where there's been unusual um, work done with brick. Mm -hmm. Um, So we sometimes have this idea that everything in New Zealand in terms of housing and town planning and everything is just some pale imitation of what was done in Britain in particular. It's not.
0: And, uh, I mean, Palmerston North is known for being very much, uh, parallel and perpendicular roads, uh, grid-like system. And then if you look at a map of Palmerston North, here's this weaving savage crescent sort of plonked in the middle of it. Um, and, and, and doesn't seem to have been emulated since. So you, you, you travel through Highbury and you see the state housing that is there. What happened? Why why was the success of Savage Crescent not necessarily Mm. identified?
1: The problem is that in the 1930s, when the state housing programme starts off, you're just coming out of the Depression. Mm. You've got lots of unemployed people, right? So you've got surveyors, you've got um, engineers, you've got painters, you've got brickies, you've got carpenters. All there waiting to be put to work, Right. So, you've got an instant labor force. But equally, to some extent, what happens is politics intervenes. Suddenly, housing becomes one of the successes of the labor government. Unexpectedly, their main interest was actually in what we'd call social welfare and health. Housing was just sort of tacked on, nice to have, but gosh, it became one of the things that got them re elected. Mm. So everything's going fine, but you've still actually got, This was a very small compact department was churning out all of these things. Ray just working every hour the God sends, honestly, and um, his family hardly saw him. And, um, but then they start to run out of land, right? So all the... the land that's been surrendered to them except the very very big block at Oraki in Auckland which was 600 acres that did take some time to churn through (laughs) yes I should imagine but elsewhere you know the blocks of land that they they'd got off these other departments was running out so they were they were having to buy land land in large blocks tended to be on the fringes of your cities but also this political pressure oh this is successful we need more of this so you get ridiculous targets set. Now, the only way to actually meet those targets is to churn out basically a similar product. And so you you get a sameness coming in. But then also, it doesn't take that long. By the sort of 1950s, you're starting to see political change. The National Party comes in. They're uncomfortable with the, the whole state housing concept. They keep it going because it is popular, because it's now to some extent, a monolith, but they're not interested in innovation. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what's lost very early and And Reg fought against that. He tried again and again and also he tried constantly to connect town planning and housing. He believed that you couldn't have one without the other and that's the normal combination overseas, certainly in Britain and Europe and parts of America. They're always done together because they're so... Never happened in New Zealand. He tried again and again, and by the nineteen mid-1940s, he basically realised it wasn't going to happen. So town planning goes off here to regulate space and land and how it's developed, and housing goes off here with a government that's increasingly not interested mm. in it. And also is trying to push more uh, the idea of homeownership yeah. that. To some extent, we started out with the idea that we were creating, and, and there is one of the myths that should be exploded. Nobody was trying to house the lowest part of society, the people that we would say were very, very low-income people or homeless people. No, the system was not interested in them, the state housing system. They were providing housing for the working man and his family, and that's how it was explained. And you had to demonstrate you could afford the rent. Was rent.
0: it rent to buy?
1: No, right. no. You, you were considered that this was rental and there are people um, who when we did the, the heritage assessment in the early 1990s, there was people in Savage Crescent who'd moved in to a brand new house in Savage Crescent and they were still there. Mm-hmm. And I had a student did some work there um, a f- few years later and he found exactly the same thing. There was quite a lot of people Um The National Party governments were a bit uncomfortable with that. They saw that as a stepping stone to ownership.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, and and that's the the distinction I seem to have in my head when it comes to state housing and social housing, is that the social housing is for the more vulnerable in our Mm -hmm. society, whereas state housing, like what Savage Crescent was originally, was for people that maybe were just struggling with home ownership, but were still contributing in, in, in some way. Um, with that distinction in mind, do you think Reg would appreciate somewhere like Papayoya Place? Is there a planning component to that that is admirable? Oh,
1: yes, yes, he would. He would because he would see any attempt to try and bring good design together um, with meeting the needs of community as being very important because his family had a very strong background of public service. Mm-hmm. His father, Horace, was the county engineer, well, Hobson County, in, uh, which was in and around Dargaville, and, and his grandfather was similar. So he did have quite a social conscience. And, and the fact that he always worked, except for a short period in the 19th, early 1930s, he always worked in public service, is an indication of that. And he did fight and fight and fight to try and keep that more innovative element mm. of the state housing. And certainly I if he was concerned that towards the end of his career that um the State Housing Programme, because of those big sprawling estates in Auckland, had in actual fact um Contributed to the spread and the expansion of cities. So he's saying that in the sort of late 1950s. he he could see that and actually a lot of the town planners of that time could. But in the end, planners as a profession, we recommend, we demonstrate our recommendations are based on good evidence and research and we we point out the consequences of what will happen. It doesn't mean anybody takes any notice of
0: us. Sounds like an ombudsman. <laughs> well, a bit, yes. We're
1: we all good heart and things and, and we always try to do the best. But, you know, I've been a practitioner and I've sat there and had my advice rejected. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, annoying as it is, unfortunately, that is the system. We well, if, you're, if, you're,
0: if your idea is not going to win them votes, then uh, that might not be the, uh, the, 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 the direction they go in. Uh, we are here with Associate Professor Caroline Miller from uh, Massey University. Uh, she wrote the biography, uh, The Life and Work of Reginald B. Hammond, the designer, uh, the town planner and architect behind Savage Crescent, uh, released by Dunmore, uh, Dunmore Publishing, uh, if you want to have a look for that online. Um, talking a bit about Reginald and, and some of the work in Palmerston North, Uh, But I also notice, uh, Caroline, that you were a commentator on a stuff session last year regarding the housing crisis. Uh, We are in a housing crisis. It took a while for people to – well, people in power to identify it as a crisis. I mean, you look at Savage Crescent. It is a huge uh, – the numbers of houses are very impressive. That would have made a real impact in a housing shortage in the 30s, no question. It strikes me that whenever I see a response to the housing crisis that is trying to address the supply and demand imbalance, it's just not enough. You know, we're dealing in little quantities of housing and we look at the numbers in waiting lists and, and, and the like and it's just – and the projected growth – nothing seems to be happening to address the supply and demand. And I was very interested when you said that the Ministry of Health were forced to give Reginald a large swathe of the land to build Savage Crescent on. Is that the sort of mentality we need to return to?
1: I think we need to to recognise that planning and housing are integral parts of each other mm. and that we tend to believe in this country that developers... Um, can do good planning. No, some can. Lots of them can't. <laughs> because developers, the person in the whole production of housing who's there for the shortest period, right? They do take the biggest risks. No desire to be a developer, thank you. <laughs> um, but in the end, their interest is in developing the land and selling it as quickly as possible to yield a profit. Yes. And that doesn't mean that they're necessarily providing something that in the long term is going to be good for the community, right? Because why would you expect them to do that? And to some extent, that's what we have a planning system for, to ensure that there is some attempt to create real livable environments um, by – Putting in place rules and um, and requirements on developers, right? In terms of so that's the the private housing market. But then New Zealand has this a very unusual housing sector in, in international terms, right? A lot of our um, rental is provided by small term investors. Mm. Mum and dad investors. Yes, who are not interested in actual fact in the rent yield from the house. They're interested ultimately in the capital gain they'll get when they sell it. Now, that means that, A, you have huge numbers of people who are p- p- housing providers technically and they are doing it in an uncoordinated manner and they have real no, in, no strong interest. Generally, there are exceptions – in doing anything except maintaining the house sufficiently that it could be sold for a capital gain at some point in the future. And bizarrely, it's some part sometimes of people's retirement planning, right? So trying to coordinate that is never going to happen. So it means that the state in terms of of, um, New Zealand, the the central state, the government, has to actually provide a lot of social housing because unlike uh, other countries local government has never in this country been empowered to produce social housing. What social housing local government produces, as it does here in Palmerston North, has been from the goodness of that council's heart Mm -hmm. at some point in the past.
0: And often flying in the face of central government as well. And
1: resisting the temptation and the pressure from central government to shed it during the neoliberalist period at its worst. So most councils have very little beyond some senior citizen housing as it used to be called, which the central government did actually subsidise at an earlier period and most local authorities have held on to that. But that caters for a tiny part of the of the social housing market. So we have recently, to be honest, Kayanga Ora has been empowered recently in a way that it has not been empowered for decades. Mm-hmm. But it's taking it time to get up to speed. And in, in many ways, it's got a difficult situation because it's got an ageing housing stock from, from the huge boom in housing from, say, the late 30s through to mid-1950s, even 60s, all requiring upgrading, all requiring, in some cases, to be replaced. However, it does mean that they've got some great housing areas to do, and the East Tamaki development in Auckland is an example of that. Unfortunately, perhaps the saddest thing is the advert I saw in the New Zealand Herald that said, oh, you know, East Tamaki, the area where there's been the greatest gain in terms of um, housing values Mm. in Auckland. And that's because, to some extent, to finance that redevelopment in there, they've sold off bits of it. And now, because of where it's located, it's gaining value. And you have to wonder how long before that drives out some more social housing. And also it creates a, a, a community with a lot of inequities in it. Well, I, I
0: just I, – I I get quite worked up about housing. And whenever I speak to journalists about this and they go, oh, the new average house price in fielding is now mm-hmm. 600000 and everything else. You have families that are conceivably earning decent salaries, three-figure salaries that cannot afford to buy – they're going to – in the 30s, they would have been considered a, a, a working family that would be eligible for a state house in Savage Crescent. But that's ridiculous. The, the house prices um, are artificially, I think in some cases, inflated. What is there? I mean, you're not an economist, I assume, but how how can that be and how can we address it? Because it should be that a family in earning a three-figure income should be able to afford their own home.
1: I did actually start life as an economist. Oh, goody. Then you'll be able to answer the question. <laughs> no, but it was a long time ago, but no, I, I did have a year's work as an economic analyst at the Reserve Bank, mm. believe it or not. Um, but I realized that at the time, economics was about building models and mm. there was no people and, and I just didn't see a future in it for me. So I left my economics behind a long time ago and it's, it's old-fashioned neoclassical stuff. Um, I think the problem in New Zealand is that the term we we don't talk about and it's one of the things I get really upset. We don't talk about buying your first home as mm. as we did when when I was young. We talk about getting your foot on the property ladder.
0: Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Now that says that, that 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 what you're buying is is to some extent an investment that at some point in the future is magically to yield you a capital gain. Right? Now that changes the whole component of the market and it does encourage that sort of behaviour and also it encourages this thing that everybody's expected to own a home. And and to some extent I can see that. You know, security of tenure was a terrible concern in the twenties and thirties.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> it still is. Yep. I mean it's probably slightly better now with the new legislation, but, but we'll we'll see. But in essence, it's not like in Germany where you could say, right, I don't actually necessarily want to own a home or I don't think that that's for me or I don't think it would be a huge economic stress to own try and own my own home. But look, I can have this lovely flat in Leipzig and um it's owned by a company who that is their business. They produce rental housing and I will can live here all my life, I have security of tenure, and if my kids want to come and live here afterwards then that can probably be organized. Do you see what I mean? Yep. There is a security that you are going to have some somewhere to live where you want to live etc. And a lot of freedom to, to do it. You know, German flats come literally empty. You mm-hmm. you even put your, your kitchen stuff in. Okay. My husband had a friend that got caught up with that when he rented a flat. <laughs> Where is it? Oh no, you buy all of these pieces and then you have, you know, the kitchen you want. And that's fine. That's great. And um, we don't have that in New Zealand. So mm. the pressure to own your own home is huge, and this is the sort of idea you failed if you mm-hmm. haven't don't own your own home.
0: And people are feeling that in this society yeah. now. People are feeling like failures because they don't own their own home.
1: And in terms of developments, I think we are dominated by the Auckland experience in many ways, and Auckland is a fast-growing city and there is no place in the world where you're ever going to keep up the supply because it's all about the infrastructure. Mm -hmm. You know, plonking the house, whether it's a flat or a medium-density development, uh, is actually the easy bit. (laughs) The hard bit is all of the land preparation and things. And by the way, a developer is not going to flood the market with, with... with um, land and developments, that isn't how you maintain prices. So there's all sorts of perversity in those markets. And at the moment, we've also got the added thing that we don't have enough people to do the building and we don't have enough, res, you know, basic resources to do the building.
0: Oh, and the pandemic.
1: <laughs> and the pandemic, you know, and COVID to add to, to, to the joys of other words. But but in essence, um, local government, has to fund that infrastructure some way. And we've got very basic, mm. basic ways of doing that in this country to this day. And central government has been enormously reluctant to recognise that they've got to have a place. But also Auckland has probably been slow to recognise that it is a city of a size. We're having a, a detached family home, which, by the way, is the housing choice. the mm. ultimate, If you say to somebody... In Ireland, in Scotland, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Canada, in America, in South America. What is, you know, if money was no object, what is your ultimate preferred housing? It's always a detached family home Mm -hmm. sitting on its own section. So Auckland has been very slow to recognise that that's not necessarily the best option. And so we've now got a situation where they, they have recognised that what you're trying to do is you're trying to retrofit a city into higher density. Now, that's always going to be difficult.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But also part of that retrofitting and getting people into to higher density is convincing people that they have to live a more metropolitan lifestyle. And that doesn't necessarily involve a car. But New Zealanders are somewhat wedded to their cars. And certainly the experience in the Addison and the Waimeha developments in Auckland, and this is what concerns me about this recent thing About the NPS on urban development, and mm-hmm, you don't need yep. any car parking, is that people do. Yes. They <laughs> still do have know. cars. Yes. And they park them on the streets, and the streets that have deliberately been made narrow to make them safer. And so you get a whole new problem, and you also get problems with theft as well. Mm-hmm. And I've got a student who's doing some work on Taranga and um, essentially these are um, quite intense developments. They are standalone. Homes, but some of them are sitting on 250 square metres. So little compact houses, so compact that the garage actually is used as living space of some sort. So weight is a cargo. Yes. <laughs> so can you see we?
0: It, we the, the, it's, it's like there needs yeah. to be a hybrid model of these learnings from around the world, but recognising what makes Kiwis Kiwis, exactly, and trying to bring those together. Uh, Caroline, we are completely out of time, and I feel we could go on for a lot longer. We may get you back again. Uh, we didn't even touch on RMA reform, which I think is potentially quite oh, yes. important in all of this space <laughs> as well. Uh, but for now, again, uh, Caroline is the author of the life and work of. Reginald B. Hammond uh, Planning to House a Nation it's basically the biography of Reginald and his work uh, with Savage Crescent uh, Dunmore Publishing uh, are the publishers on that one and you'll be able to find that online uh, Caroline Miller Associate Professor at Massey University thank you for joining us this morning
1: thank you for giving me the opportunity
0: and if you want to listen to this or previous editions of the Catch Up series just head to the website npr.nz forward slash show forward slash catch up back tomorrow with another edition at half past eight please do join us then support this show and others like it by giving a donation for more information go to www.mpr.nz forward donate